Unternehmen auf der ganzen Welt versuchen gerade jetzt, die Art und Weise neu zu erfinden, wie sie mit der Welt in Kontakt treten. Ganz gleich, ob sie Pakete ausliefern, Patienten behandeln oder ein globales Kundensupportcenter betreiben, ihre Kunden brauchen sie. Und sie brauchen neue Wege, wie sie in Verbindung bleiben können. Twilio ist die Plattform, der Millionen von Entwicklern vertrauen, um nahtlose Kommunikationserlebnisse zu schaffen. Was auch immer Ihr Anwendungsfall ist, Twilio hält Ihnen den Rücken frei. Es ist an der Zeit, Kommunikation neu zu erfinden. Besuchen Sie twilio.com, um mehr zu erfahren. The Guardian Welcome to Politics Weekly. I'm Heather Stewart, political editor of The Guardian, and this week we're doing something slightly different. Reporting on politics is a funny old business. These days, extraordinary, unexpected things happen all the time. Brexit, Donald Trump in the White House, Boris Johnson in number 10, for goodness sake. But once they've happened, they take on an air of inevitability. We charge on to the next crisis and rarely stop to ask ourselves if it could have been otherwise and what that might have meant. So this week, as the Brexit frenzy goes on around us, we decided to pause, reflect and make an entire show out of hypotheticals. We're calling it our What If episode. And over the course of three panel discussions with the people who were there, we'll delve into the many possibilities of what might have happened if a major political moment had gone another way. First up, I ask, what if Gordon Brown had called an election in 2007? To help me answer the question, I was joined by Deborah Mattinson, who was a pollster on Brown's team, Baroness Kate Fall, the former Deputy Chief of Staff for David Cameron, and The Guardian's economics editor, Larry Elliott. Just a heads up, you might hear some tree surgery taking place outside Larry's window. He very kindly threw a duvet over his head, but unfortunately the noise was quite loud. Larry, we were both covering the economy at that time, weren't we? Maybe you could kick us off by setting out what, what the economic backdrop was at that time. Yeah, the, the economy was in uh, pretty good shape um, in the summer of 2007. Uh, you know, the, the economy had been growing steadily for 15 years, the longest uninterrupted period of, uh, of growth without a recession for, 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 for centuries, I think. So unemployment was low, uh, the housing market was strong. Um, everything looked pretty good when when Gordon Brown took over from Tony Blair. And Deborah, you were a pollster for Brown, weren't you? What, what were you telling him about the public mood at that time? So, I mean, at that point, everything in terms of politics from, from Gordon Brown and Labour's perspective was also looking very good. You know, Gordon Brown, and people forget this, but Gordon Brown had been the most popular politician in Britain for quite some time. And his popularity had surged uh, when he became leader of the Labour Party and Prime Minister. It is with humility and it's with pride and it's with a great sense of duty that I accept the privilege and the great responsibility of leading our party and changing our country. And, and what then followed was, uh, if you remember, this extraordinary summer where Gordon, you know, famously sort of abandoned his holiday, stepped off the beach in, uh, you know, in the South Coast, wherever he was, uh, to tackle, first of all, you know, there was terrorism, terrorist attacks in London and Glasgow, flooding, foot and mouth. There, there were a series of crises. And Gordon was very good at this. He was very good with crises. He was dubbed the sort of serious man for serious times. We'd been working with an ad agency who came up with it, not Flash, just Gordon um, slogan, which seemed to really kind of catch the mood. 
and, and things were looking pretty good, which of course was one of the reasons why the team around Gordon started to think, well, maybe we should be thinking about an early election. And that was really what triggered all of those conversations because all of those conditions had come together. It was a, you know, it was a, it was a sort of perfect storm in terms of creating the right moment, I think, to, to go early and for him to get his own mandate. And Kate, the, the Tories didn't have a, many cards to play. It's harder when you're in opposition, but they, they, they sort of goaded, Cameron goaded Brown, didn't he? And sort of almost dared him to call an election. And then George Osborne, Sort of play this trump card really didn't he and gave a speech at Tory party conference where he talked about a big cut in inheritance tax that perhaps Labour might might struggle to match that that was a sort of um came to be seen as quite a clever move didn't it well actually the drama all in a way centered around that week in Blackpool for the Tories where we were we knew that we were in a precarious situation we had another problem too which is as our as our polling went down the Cord party who weren't totally in love with the sort of more liberal conservative agenda David was pushing, were also, you know, not very happy. So we had an unhappy core and Labour doing better. So coming into that party conference, we knew we had to have a really good week. And we spent weeks working on a strong policy agenda on the speeches and everything. But also, if you remember a brilliant speech by by David, of course, I'm party pre being my former boss, but the first of the no notes, you know, he spoke for an hour without notes, He gave a brilliant speech, he had the hall with him. Um, so we really came back from that conference with with a sense of the party united behind the team, a really good week. And then we were waiting on that Friday. Have we done enough not to have this election called? And I think De- Deborah will know better being being un, um, a pollster. But I think there was a poll or at least news of a poll on the Friday that, that drew us level with, with, with Labour. And that is maybe what put Gordon off calling that election. Gosh, this is so vivid for me. Kate has outlined so clearly what, what, what went right for the Tories. And of course, we were, we were watching every second of this. But in, in fact, in a way, what had gone wrong for Labour had happened the week before, where there had been an opportunity to either dampen down all the speculation or to go for it, and and neither of those things happened, which which meant that um, you know there just became this kind of very febrile atmosphere. And yes, you know, I, I think Labour had had an okay conference. I don't think it had been amazing. And uh, you know, as Kate says, as what we saw through that was the the polling lead that Labour had enjoyed for quite some time dwindling away. So you could almost see it sort of disappearing before your eyes. But of course, the decisions that were being taken and were in fact taken on that Friday uh, were taken on the basis of Labour's uh, much more detailed private polling. Larry, ultimately, looking at that private polling and looking at everything else, Gordon Brown bottled it, didn't he? Yeah, I think the other factor leading up to that sort of febrile period was that the financial crisis had started to become apparent. So, you know, Gordon's became Prime Minister in the summer and almost within a month you started to see the financial crisis unfold and in September there'd been the uh, Northern Rock collapse so you'd had three days of people queuing up outside Northern Rock uh, to get their money out and in a a way it was a choice do you go early uh, before the bad consequences of the financial crisis become apparent or do you try and see it out um, and get through it to the other side? I mean, no, nobody really knew in September and October 
2007 just how serious the financial crisis was going to become. But it was quite clear even then that there were going to be ramifications. Uh, and that's obviously a much less advantageous position to fight an election if you're a sitting prime minister than an economy which is growing. So had he gone for an election in 2000 and in the autumn of 2007, he would have got away with, away with it, I think, before the, the really bad implications of the financial crisis started to hit the economy. Kate, what do you think... David Cameron would have done it if Brown had called his bluff and called that an election. Were, were you ready? Were the Conservatives ready to fight a campaign? You obviously had a few manifesto promises we saw at that conference, but but you know how ready were you? Um, not ready enough. I remember Oliver Letwin, who was in charge of the manifesto, rushing back to his office after conference saying, I've got a manifesto to write in two days. So, I mean, we had, you know, put out the offer of what the sort of early Cameron sort of stood for. And it was all about, in a way, social responsibility. It was not talking about immigration tax cuts and ironically banging on about Europe. It was a green agenda. It was it was 0.7. It, was, it, it felt very different. And of course, the point Larry's making is absolutely right that when we did, in fact, go to the election um, in 2010, all those early Cameron um, conversations and narratives, of course, suddenly looked out of date because the one policy that really, the one thing that mattered in 2010 was, of course, the economy. So, you know, it would have been a very different election. And I was reflecting on this before coming to talk to you today. And I, I did think, you know, w- would David Cameron have won? He he might have done, because the one thing we saw from the Theresa May election was how precarious elections can be, especially if you call them for yourself and not because they're due. So I think that David Cameron would have given Gordon Brown a, a difficult election. And of course, he was a good candidate. So both of them would have had a good run of it, I think. Deborah, you presumably think from your analysis at the time that, that Labour would have won, do you? Do, do you still stand by that? Yes, I do think Labour would have won. I mean, I think the thing that was tricky for Labour and became more tricky uh, following, uh, you know, as Kate says, the Tories in a very, very successful uh, conference, is that Labour would have won but possibly lost a few seats. The bit that, that we were worried about, and it's interesting thinking about this, was that in, in some of those southern marginal seats that Labour was currently holding, we only had a lead of 5%. Yeah, it, it is extraordinary to think that we were, we were panicking really about a lead of 5%. My, my judgment would be that Labour would have won, but would probably have won with a slightly smaller majority than had been achieved in 2005. And, and, and that was something that I think in the end Gordon found unpalatable. Kate, to go to go deep into the sort of counterfactuals, um, had, had there been that two thousand and seven election, and had the Conservatives lost it, I know you say David Cameron would have had a chance, but but would the Conservatives have got rid of their leader? Do you think they're notoriously ruthless that they chucked a few others over the side already? They, could could we have had a different Tory leader? Would would it have been a more Eurosceptic one, perhaps, for example? Well, it's a very interesting question. I mean, in some ways, I, I think they might have given David a second chance because he, you know, he had been doing really well and he was strong. But I, I, I do think the party, you know, it is ruthless. You're absolutely right. And it used to be you'd lose elections like Neil Kinnock and they'd give you a second chance. I'm not sure that they necessarily would have, um, would have kept with the David and George partnership had they lost an election. 
And then the question would have been, would they have pivoted from a more centrist candidate back to a more traditional, maybe more right-wing candidate? Probably, because I think the party tends to veer from one to the other. I mean, if we see that in some modern modern political experiences, that tends to be how the party moves. So I think, yes, maybe we would have had a different type of leader up against a Gordon in that it wouldn't have been 2010, but whenever (laughs) whenever he would have taken the country. And Larry, can you imagine? It's it's hard to imagine, but can you can you imagine Gordon Brown? You know, he'd, he, if he won in two thousand and seven, and he'd sort of masterfully handled the financial crisis, could he have smoothly handed over to another Labour leader? Do you think? And, and and would that have been Ed Miliband, or was was Ed Miliband partly a result of the feeling in the party? You know, after losing in twenty ten. I don't really imagine Gordon smoothly handing power over to anybody. I mean, you know, <laughs> Gordon, <laughs> to, to, to be honest, I mean, Gordon has got very you know great attributes, but he is a bit of a control freak. So yeah, he might have he would have clung on for his, you know, and his successor, potential successors would have become as frustrated with him as he became with Tony Blair. I suspect. Does it really ring true that Gordon would have said, you know, what my time's up? I'm now going to hand over to uh, someone in their in their early forties. The only person I can see him possibly of handing over to would have been Ed Balls but even then it's for me it's a bit of a stretch to think so I mean I think that Gordon had been waiting to become Prime Minister for so long and in fact that's one of the reasons I think he probably didn't go for the election in 2007 he'd only been Prime Minister for four or five months by that stage and you know if you've been if you've been yearning for something your entire life do you willingly put yourself in a position where you might lose that everything that you've worked for. So I, I think that's, you know, psychologically, there was a fact that was a factor at play there. You know, Gordon's still active now. Gordon's still doing stuff now. Um, and uh, I don't think that he would have, he would have uh, handed over quickly to it, to, to a putative successor. No, I don't. Deborah, do you think that's right? Did you think any of the sort of internecine strife that Labour have suffered over the last few years could have been avoided in the, in, in those circumstances? Yes, I think it would have been avoided. You know, you imagine a situation where he'd handled the financial crisis, come out the other end. There had been the triumphant Olympics. Uh, I remember once Tessa Giles saying to me that any party that is in government when their country holds the Olympics pretty much always goes on to win the next election. I think that it would have worked well uh, for Gordon and I think he would have been very reluctant to move on, uh, which, which would have provided a sort of stability um, and what happened afterwards would have been quite different. In the end, he obviously would have would have gone. Um, as, as Larry says, he would have perhaps liked to have seen Ed Balls as his successor. I personally think Ed Balls would have, would have been great, but I mean, whether or not the rest of the party would have agreed, I think would remain to be seen. But I can't imagine any set of circumstances in which the sort of Jeremy Corbyn era could have happened if that had been, uh, you know, if, if, if that had sort of paved the way for, for you know, for, for the next choice of leader. Kate, I wonder what you think about Brexit. It's, it's, you know, there's, there's a version of, of the sort of story of Brexit which says, you know, it's an inevitable once you get the ructions of the global financial crisis and you sort of put that together with long-held Euroscepticism. There's also a version of it which is, you know, it was David Cameron trying to sort of still the Eurosceptic forces in his own party. It was a kind of internal Tory party issue. I, I wonder what you, what you think might have happened or, you know, was, was Brexit ultimately inevitable? I definitely think the referendum was inevitable, not necessarily Brexit. I mean, if you think of the fact that all three major parties went into the 2015 election talking about an in-out referendum in one form or another, 
But I think the other thing you say is absolutely right. I think the financial crisis did play into this because it did make the Eurozone countries need to come together in order to sustain their currency. And then because we in Britain were um, doing so well, of course, there was a great jobs migration. And I think people saw that as another reason to be worried about our relationship in Europe, the freedoms and everything. So all these things came together. And I therefore do think that the idea that we would have gone on and on without a sense of renewing that mandate with no referendum was unlikely. It might have gone another way, possibly. I think inevitable, obviously, is a big word. And one of the things that Gordon was most proud of was his record in raising the living standards of the poorest and most vulnerable. That's why we had a whole system of tax credits and increases in child benefits. So I think that a Brown premiership would have actually shielded some of the most vulnerable people, some of the people who were keenest on Brexit in 2016. There would have not been the same sort of sense of grievance and populist unhappiness that there was in 2016 with a, with, a, with a brown premiership. I think the recent history of Britain would have been markedly different if Brown had fought an election and won it in 2017. Oh, we could talk all day, I feel, but um, that's been a really, really fascinating conversation and what a lovely distraction from the kind of crazy day-to-day of, uh, of politics and everything else at the moment. Thank you all so much, Larry Elliott, Deborah Mattinson and Kate Fall. Thanks so much. We're going to take a quick break here. We'll be right back. Unternehmen auf der ganzen Welt versuchen gerade jetzt, die Art und Weise neu zu erfinden, wie sie mit der Welt in Kontakt treten. Ganz gleich, ob sie Pakete ausliefern, Patienten behandeln oder ein globales Kundensupportcenter betreiben. Ihre Kunden brauchen sie. Und sie brauchen neue Wege, wie sie in Verbindung bleiben können. Twilio ist die Plattform, der Millionen von Entwicklern vertrauen, um nahtlose Kommunikationserlebnisse zu schaffen. Was auch immer Ihr Anwendungsfall ist, Twilio hält Ihnen den Rücken frei. Es ist an der Zeit, Kommunikation neu zu erfinden. Besuchen Sie twilio.com, um mehr zu erfahren. Welcome back to Politics Weekly. I'm Heather Stewart and this week we're discussing political hypotheticals. Next up, The Guardian's deputy political editor Jessica Elgott wanted to know... What if David Cameron had won the Brexit referendum? She put this question to the former Labour MP who was chair of the Vote Leave group, Gisela Stewart, former director of communications for David Cameron, Craig Oliver, and Anand Menon, director of the think tank UK in a changing Europe. Craig, maybe you can identify for us before we sort of really turn into the hypothetical, what you thought the really key moments of difficulty were for David Cameron during that campaign, perhaps moments that if they'd have gone another way might have have made a difference. I think the the inevitable one is Boris Johnson's decision to go for leave. Um, It wasn't clear that he was an ultra leaver and that he'd always believed in this. And the story that I tell is that basically when we'd done the renegotiation, we came back to Downing Street. We were sitting in the prime minister's study on the morning where he was just about to hold a cabinet. And then after cabinet, he was going to go out into the street of number 10 and he was going to fire the starting gun on the referendum. And I remember just trying to run through the prime minister, the, the choreography of that and the messaging of that. And then I realised he wasn't really paying a blind bit of notice to what he w- I was doing. And he was distracted by an email. And he had his, his elbows on his knees and his glasses on the end of his nose. And he was scrolling through a very, very long email. And he looked up and said, well, it looks like out. And he didn't need to say to me that that was actually what Boris Johnson had sent him and explained to him. But I think his decision 
to go for leave was the real game changer. And that's what made all the difference in the end. Gisela, obviously you were on the other side of the argument, but you were a Labour MP. And how much difference do you think Corbyn's lack of gusto, shall we say, in backing uh, remaining in the EU was was a, a real factor because possibly under any other Labour leader in history, you would have seen a much more enthusiastic campaign. Well, I mean, I think this referendum sort of brought together so many ifs and, and what have you. I mean, just coming back to, to Craig, I know he thinks I'm a bit uncharitable to David Cameron, but given that what he came back with in the renegotiations was something I tried to get in the 2002 constitutional debates and was then told by Tony Blair and uh, the team that this stuff really wasn't worth having. Uh, We still see the referendum through the spectrum of the European Union. The referendum was lost for for much, much deeper reasons. Uh, And that also takes you to to Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party leadership. Both political parties had not engaged, A, with their relationship with with Brussels, but also had kind of lost touch with with their own voters in in, in a quite arrogant way. It just showed itself in different ways. So I think the confusion uh, over Jeremy Corbyn's position was a reflection of a confusion of a Labour Party. And that confusion started with uh, Ed Miliband, who who thought he would get win an election by trashing his predecessor's records. So it had more to do with that the, the voters on both sides kind of didn't really believe anything the party leaders were telling them. Let's move on to a bit of a hypothetical and, and, and just rewind to, to June the, the 23rd, 2016. If we imagine the results have gone the other way, Craig, how do you think you and David Cameron and the team would have, would have celebrated that? What would have been the tone uh, of the victory speech? Well, the idea of it was going to be that, that David Cameron would have moved this boulder out of the road of British politics and would then have been in a position to reunite the Conservative Party and move on. And I think quite quickly that turned out to be a pipe dream. That just wasn't going to happen. During the campaign, lead people were asked persistently, what would happen if you lose this campaign? And the answer that came back quite surprisingly was, well, that wouldn't have been an end to it. And I think that the reality is that having David Cameron have led so much from the front to have remained in charge, even though he in victory was very unlikely. What you have to understand about the mentality of, of a lot of Conservative MPs at the time and the European Research Group now is there is nothing more important to them than Brexit. The Conservative Party comes second. The Union of the United Kingdom comes third. It is just not something that they consider to be um, thing that needs to be negotiated over. And it's almost a religious thing. So I think if David Cameron had won, he would have been in an extraordinarily difficult position. He would have very quickly faced a leadership challenge, probably from Boris Johnson. I suspect he would have been knocked out as leader of the Conservative Party. And we would be in a position where people were building up to having another referendum on Europe. But you see, you've got to remember that if if Cameron had won the referendum, then UKIP would have continued to have a, a grievance on which to campaign. By the way, I also think that if the Electoral Commission had nominated Leave EU as the, 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 the official campaigning organisation, the referendum uh, would have been lost too. So UKIP would have continued. Jeremy Corbyn would have continued as, as party leader. The Tory party, from where I see it, Craig, 
actually was, after the referendum, more united on the subject of Europe, particularly after the 2017 and after the 2019 uh, uh, election, than I had ever seen it. So I think the, 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 the split in the Tory party, you're right, would have, would have continued, but you also would have had a Labour party in deep trouble, and at least the Labour party is... Be, beginning to get itself back on track and probably the Tory party too. I think we can possibly debate whether the Tory party was was uh, united after the 2017 general election but but I I Adan, do do you think if Cameron had stayed prime minister we didn't get Theresa May do you think there would have been a clamor for further renegotiation what might the diplomatic situation have looked like in that circumstance? The renegotiation would have been would have been implemented. And I imagine one of the things that have been real pressure on uh, the prime minister to do is to try and implement the sort of emergency lock on uh, the right to welfare benefits. But I think the other two are right. I think that the, you know UKIP wouldn't have stopped campaigning. There would have been real divisions within the parliamentary Conservative Party. I wonder whether the uh, European Court of Human Rights would have been a sort of good proxy target for the government if it wanted to throw a bit of red meat to those who were disappointed with the outcome. But that the debate would have rumbled on. The other thing that's worth saying, I think, is that the domestic debate would have been fundamentally different. You wouldn't have had a a Conservative Prime Minister standing on the steps of Downing Street in July 2016 talking about the just about managings and the iniquities of the capitalist system, which is what we got, not least because of the way the referendum went. Yes, we would have had, I mean, it's quite hard to imagine this in, in, you know, in coronavirus terms as well, but we would technically have had an election in May 2020, although... Perhaps we would have had an earlier one if Cameron had faced a leadership challenge and say that we did we did have that and say that it wasn't cancelled because of COVID-19 or had to be changed in some way. Who do you think would have been leading the parties? And I think we, we should definitely talk more about UKIP in this in this scenario. Would UKIP's rise have, have continued that long uh, into the referendum? Would they what, what gains would they have made? What do you think, Craig? So I think what would have happened is that David Cameron would have been ejected from the party. And I think that, the, that it would have been possible for whoever became leader of the Conservative Party to win without saying that they were going to be incredibly tough on Europe and have a a further referendum or further push this because they would have been extremely aware of being outflanked by Nigel Farage, who, as Gisela said, would be looking for a grievance. So I think it probably would have accelerated the situation where the Conservative Party pretty much ended up in the position where it is now, where they've expelled the more moderate pro-Euro MPs like a virus, and the party has become a leave party. It has been the party of Brexit, and we probably would have seen a lot of things that have happened in the last four years, but maybe accelerated, and accelerated to a position where the party is quite as hard line on it as it is now. Gisela, in a May 2020 election, probably Labour being led by Jeremy Corbyn into that, how much how much damage do you think a UKIP could have done in an election like that? I think that the hemorrhaging in what is now described as the, the, the red wall, uh, I think people, rather than abandoning Labour and making a big jump to the Conservative Party, uh, I th- is probably less likely to have happened. I think uh, the UKIP would have provided them with a, a sort of resting lily pad on which the, the voters could decide and then would have made it slightly easier for the Labour Party to come back. However, you would have had five years of a, a Corbyn Labour Party and that kind of erosion of the 
electoral machinery capacity on the ground, which is the bit people don't tend to talk about, but you know, this is the big damage for Labour, would have gone even further. And I think for the Labour Party, it would have been just just so bad, I don't even want to think about it. And and it obviously hinges on so much, but who do, who would you have seen of winning that that twenty twenty election in uh, under those circumstances? Say maybe Boris Johnson versus Jeremy Corbyn versus Nigel Farage. I think I pretty much agree with uh, Gisela there. I think both parties would have lost votes to UKIP. I think UKIP would have done spectacularly well in an election under those circumstances because disaffected Brexiters on the Tory side and those Labour voters who didn't like Jeremy Corbyn on the Labour side might well have been tempted to go to either uh, another third party like the Lib Dems or or UKIP. But I I agree, I think Labour would have been decimated in an election like that because in many ways, one of the things that kept the voters going to Labour during the 2017 and 2019 elections, even though Corbyn was in charge, was a sense that Labour was the only alternative if you didn't want the kind of Brexit that the Conservative Party was offering. And absent that, there'd have been very little pull towards Labour, I think, for people, and Labour would have done dreadfully. And I think the reality is I don't think we would have lasted till 2020 to have a general election. I think that the reality is the Conservative Party would have quickly worked out that it needed to neutralise Nigel Farage, got a leader in who was doing that kind of thing and tried to call an election very quickly. Interestingly, what Boris did was effectively do a deal with Nigel Farage just before the 2019 election. I suspect something similar would have happened a few years before Um, And we would probably be in a position where it was demanded that there be a further referendum, probably one that I suspect in those circumstances would be won. And I I guess, Gisela, as well, do you think that there would have been some similar feeling of an existential crisis in Europe if they'd have seen a major leave vote in this country, even if Remain had won? I'm not sure if we're really seeing that Europe has taken an enormous amount uh, 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 of change in its attitude even since the Leave vote, uh, especially since the pandemic, when there now seems to be you know, much more of a focus on that, understandably. But do you think there would have been a, a significant shift in the way Europe is, is thinking? That's not the way the European Union works if referendums are won, however narrow the margin. I mean, you go, go back to the French referendum on the Maastricht Treaty, I think that was 51-49 or something, but it didn't re- lead to a rethink. They just, they just took that as an acceptance and moved on. So, And as you quite rightly say, Jess, I don't think... Even the fact that the vote went in favour of Brexit has led for it to any soul-searching on the part of the European Union. So there's absolutely no reason to think that a vote the other way would happen. And, and actually, curiously, that was one of the reasons why in the end I decided to to uh, support the Leave campaign, because I thought the, the, the European Union need to change. I thought they show absolutely no sign to ever change uh, what, whatever various voters in various countries tell them. If we now end up with a, with a Remain vote in, in the UK, then even the slightest chink of hope that they're going to change at all uh, has gone. And I was terribly amused to read in the papers uh, just the other day that the Portuguese prime minister was calling for two kinds of European membership, Eurozone countries and non-Eurozone countries. And I thought, yeah, exactly. If if we'd been there in 2016, I would have been on the other side. They still have to face up to this. And yet they never do. Final question to all three of you. We are technically looking down the barrel of a no-deal Brexit. Is that something any of you would have predicted even after the uh, after the result? I would not have thought that we would have been so foolish as to get to that situation, but I notice that we have the European Research Group 
pushing Boris Johnson very, very hard on this and they will make serious trouble for him if they perceive he's done a, a deal which has um, stopped their dream coming true. And I, I, so, so I think that's, that's a very important point. I think probably just thinking in conclusion about this, I think the one thing that we all missed, the one thing that we didn't see was the extent to which people were shifting in terms of how they vote. And we'd always thought of it as an economic thing. And actually cultural issues have shone through. And you saw a campaign that basically was had spotted that and willing to accelerate that, I would say quite often in disingenuous ways, but others would disagree. But for me, I think that would have continued even if even if Leave had lost. And I think the reality of that situation is with us now and would have continued regardless of who'd won. But to kind of paraphrase Craig, uh, and I would not have anticipated that the European Union would ever be so foolish to end up in a position that, as it claims to be this most magnificent peace project since uh, the end of World War II, uh, to be incapable of striking a deal when one of its significant members, after 40 years of membership, following a democratic vote, decides to leave, that they cannot arrive at a deal. And what I'd say is that the negotiations have been very disappointing because neither side, I don't think, and I don't think he's is right to say this is just down to the EU, neither side has stepped back and looked at this strategically and said, look, we're neighbours, we're partners, we're security collaborators, we need to arrive at a situation where we can work together. So let's have that as our objective and plot a course towards that outcome. Both sides have looked very narrowly down at, these are my red lines, these are our legal restrictions, though in many cases they're not really legal restrictions on the EU side, and we're immediately hamstrung and this is the most we can give. And I think that that is just strategically rather blind and we'll come back to haunt both sides in the future. Please, Liz Stewart, Craig Oliver and Anne Menon, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And finally, as the Scottish National Party continues to push for a second independence referendum, I wondered what if Scotland had voted yes to independence in 2014. For this one, I spoke to the Guardian's Scotland correspondent Libby Brooks, the former Scottish Labour MP who campaigned for no, Paul Sweeney, and the journalist and presenter for a weekly podcast, Leslie Riddock, who campaigned for yes. Libby, maybe it's just because of the year I have, but we've had, but 2014 seems like a very long time ago. And... Um, I was on maternity leave at the time, so I was not reporting on it. I was kind of consuming the news at that point. But but tell us what your kind of what, what was the atmosphere like? What are your kind of memories like from the, the the sort of feeling of that campaign, that period? Well, I was I was up reporting in in Glasgow at the time, and I remember. I mean, Glasgow, if if you recall, became known as Yes City because it was sort of one of the big Yes boats ultimately. You know, in, in uh, September, and it was. It was a really exciting time to be in the city. You know, you could kind of feel it on the streets. You would be standing at a bus stop and people would be having conversations about currency. And it was it was sort of very much engaging everybody that, that you met. And people were taking it sort of really seriously. It was a very serious question to be asked, obviously. Mm, and Leslie, just take us back a step from that, perhaps, and just remind us, how did Scotland secure this referendum? How, how did you end up having the referendum in the first place? Well, there was uh, an SNP government elected which had not sufficient of a majority to carry forward the mandate for referendum. And it was astonishing, really, because the SNP had been nowhere until 2007 
then had come in as a minority government. I don't think anyone still sort of took it seriously that a party committed to independence would then be trying to move forward on a referendum even then. It took the next election with a bigger majority and the capacity for the SNP to move on that. David Cameron, after a bit of shilly-shallying, did take this very seriously and produce the Edinburgh Agreement, which was a formal agreement between the two governments. And that was what led to the referendum, which was a, an official legally agreed process in which the British government gave what were famously known as Section 30 powers, which are the powers reserved to Westminster to conduct referendums. It gave that to the Scottish Parliament so that the referendum could be conducted legally. So that's how we got there. And Paul, Glasgow's your city. It was it was a yes city, as Libby said. What role were you playing in the campaign, though? I hadn't really got involved in, the, in any act of campaigning in the referendum until about the last hundred days or so. I was working in the shipyards on the Clyde at the time. And I think we grew increasingly nervous about the implications of, um, you know, the referendum for the shipbuilding industry. And I was eventually moved to sort of go down to the offices of the, the, the no campaign and sort of say, look, um, if you want any input on regards to shipbuilding or anything, let me know. Because um, I think there's quite a lot of us here that are kind of concerned about what it might mean for us. And, uh, and lo and behold, I was kind of, they were like, yes, yes, can you say something about it? Um, and I was like, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll, write, I'll write something. And I'll maybe they asked me to speak at one of their events and then I kind of, get pulled back in again towards the end of the campaign when I was asked to speak with Gordon Brown. You know, I had lots of discussions in the run-up to it, and what I increasingly found was that people were kind of rounding up or rounding down. They were weighing up this binary decision, um, yes or no. And actually, many people were somewhere in between the two poles uh, of yes or no, and they were kind of trying to decide which which way they should move towards. Um, and that's kind of where I was at as well. I wasn't like completely against the idea of change, but I didn't think that particular type of change was was necessarily entirely beneficial. So yeah, it was a a crazy old time actually. <laughs> and Leslie, the No campaign took this approach, didn't it? That was was um, Labour figures took a leading role in it. Alistair Darling, Gordon Brown, as Paul says there, but that they took an approach, didn't they? That was dubbed. Project Fear, when I mean, we saw that again during the Brexit campaign, but it, a lot of it was about the economic risks of leaving the union, wasn't it? Which, you know, as we say, we saw we saw repeated a, a couple of years later, and and then there was a a sort of last minute promise of more devolution, wasn't there? A sort of a vow, I think it was called at the last minute. Yeah, that's what Paul was referring to from Gordon Brown, and I mean, in a way, that was both a powerful moment for Labour because it it, it seems that that certainly did just prey on anxieties people already had which largely, ironically, arise from being a bit of a branch economy in Scotland where people actually have believed that any money that comes to them, even in the form of pensions, uh, would actually disappear without realising it was their own money that was being sent down to London coming back to them in the form of pensions. So that definitely hit the kind of worry button of a lot of canny Scots. But on the other hand, if you looked forward to the 2015 election that happened straight after the referendum, Labour were absolutely annihilated. And I mean, had one uh, MP left in in Scotland, which contributed then to Ed Miliband losing that election when there had been hopes, I think, in Labour that at least there would be a kind of hung parliament and David Cameron would be out. You know, there was a lot of ramifications from that, which really changed 
the, the status quo in both countries, actually, because things were not resolved by the way that that referendum ended. Paul, let's talk about that collapse in Labour support. Was that down to the referendum? Was it something that had deeper roots? It was partly to do with young people, wasn't it, feeling that, that Labour had taken the, the sort of establishment side? I mean, the, the difficulty, of course, was this binary camp. So it became increasingly entrenched. Um, it still percolates through Scottish politics in, in some cases quite a poisonous way to this day. That was a real concern for me, you know, like just about how to come back together again. I don't think that's ever really been achieved. And in the first past the post system, of course, one of the probably unanticipated consequences of it was that the 45% who had voted for independence coalesced behind um, the SNP as this kind of champion of the cause. And in Glasgow, certainly, um, where a majority had voted for uh, independence, that meant that you had significant change in certain constituencies. And what was most remarkable in Glasgow, of course, was significant increases in turnout. And that combined with, uh, say, a, a quarter to a third of previous Labour voters switching to the SNP was enough to completely annihilate the, the Labour. So it was a, a significant backlash, if you like. But that's given us a sense of what the kind of debates were and the energy around it. Let's try and sort of bend our minds around what, how, how things might have been different, what might have happened if the result had gone the other way. Um, Leslie, how different a course do you think a Scottish government would have been able to chart for itself? How, how different would Scotland look and feel? You could probably make an hour-long programme about that, but <laughs> it, briefly. <laughs> well, for starters, I think Alex Salmon would still be well, Prime Minister of an independent Scotland because he, he only resigned because the referendum was lost. That would have meant quite a lot of things. I mean, obviously, there would have been a bumpy road uh, for a new country. There is no precedent of any of the very wealthy Nordic nations around us becoming independent without uh, a bumpy period. Alex had quite a record as being, well, he was an economist, as quite an interventionist kind of uh, first minister. So I think he would have been pushing the boat out, as he already had been, to shift away from fossil fuels towards renewables. And we would also have had Nicola Sturgeon. She was at the time health minister. She might well have stayed in that position. Um, we would have had COVID-19 that had nothing to do with constitutional politics. But as an independent country, Scotland would have been able to do what our what our neighbours have been able to do, um, which was close our borders. So it wouldn't have been, you know, a completely happy, clappy situation at all. But I think there would have been a fairly stable transition, given that the referendum was actually based on a legal agreement between two two governments. So, yeah, I mean, that's a starter. I think we would probably be in a slightly better place than we are now. Mm. And Paul, it's a possible question to answer, obviously, but can you imagine Labour coming to an em embrace independence, embrace an independent Scotland? You know, could we have had a Labour government of an independent Scotland in this period since, or, or would it have been impossible to take on the SNP? Well, it's an interesting hypothetical. Um, you know, I remember, I remember reading the alternative speech that Alex Salmond had written that morning, you know, that he would have given. And I suppose initially there would have been a great sense of anxiety and elation that would have kind of then dissipated and then it would be in, I suppose David Cameron would have resigned as Prime Minister and perhaps we would never have had uh, Brexit. Mm, Libby, I was going to come on to that. Do you think that's right? Dave, David Cameron did resign, didn't he, over the Brexit referendum that he lost? But uh, oddly, the fact that he'd won the 2014 Scottish independence referendum, as he saw it, made him think, you know, that was a triumph and perhaps it was worth gambling on Brexit two years later. I wonder whether we could have had avoided Brexit if, if, if he'd lost in 2014. 
Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's it's very likely that that he would have had to stand down if if he had been the prime minister that that lost Scotland. And um, I also think that it'd be interesting just to 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 know how the response of the public uh, would have sort of impacted on you know how the rest of the UK felt. I mean, the the response of the the Scottish public, you know, if there had been a narrow win for the yes side in in twenty fourteen, would there have been street protests, recriminations? Would we have seen the geographical splits that we saw after the Brexit vote? You know, I think how the Scottish public handled the aftermath could have sort of impacted in a really sort of interesting and curious way on on the rest of the UK in terms of them perhaps saying, you know, we don't want to see that level of discord here. I mean, if you, you think about it, so the, the current discussions around a second independence referendum, many people in, in the SNP will, will point to the divisions of Brexit and say, you know, they're you know absolutely certain they want to avoid those. And and that's why it's, it's important to get consistent support for independence, for example, you know, beyond 60% or so. However, the dynamics of, and this is where I sort of disagree with Paul, obviously I do. <laughs> I mean, when he talked about his past, I was actually a member of the Liberals before they were the Liberal Democrats. I'm that old. And I was that long a believer in federalism. And it was watching it never, ever take root in any of the other political parties in a serious way that just slowly moved me away from that as an option for these islands. I was brought up in Northern Ireland, lived in England. I was in college in Wales. I've no desire to be sort of like this destructive nationalism thing but I've now begun to see that there is a different politics UKIP never scored here it was polling something like three four percent when it was you know in double digits south of the border this worry about immigration it's not one that Scotland shares from a pretty self an enlightened sort of approach to this because we need incoming people and uh Freedom of movement. People want freedom of movement. We voted to stay. You know, that was in us. It was in us to come out with a referendum in the same way as anxieties about identity and post-empire purpose and all the things that have been have been pinpointed about the English identity was in the English electorate to come out. It, it doesn't look like a, a kind of possibility of anything but binary options within Britain and actually, it's the search for a sort of more finessed uh, politics that makes me want now Scottish independence, because it is quite unnatural for so many people to be piled in behind one political party. So that's the kind of situation we've got ourselves into. Would it south of the border, that that sort of almost insult to to Britain, to the... Uh, to England, would that have resulted in a kind of welling up of some sort of feeling that taking back control was the only way for England to regain some vestige of its previous glory? It very possibly would have done. Mm. Interesting. I am going to bring this uh, discussion to a close, although I feel we could probably talk all day about it. But I am going to ask you all three one more quick question. Um, there are Holyrood ex- elections next year. Of course, the SNP are in a very strong position in the polls. Do you think we will see an independent Scotland in the next, say, five years? Leslie, just a yes or no? Yes. Paul, what do you think? I don't think so, but I hope we see reform. Libby, you're, you're just a reporter, of course, toiling at the <laughs> just a place reporter. of news. But <laughs> just a reporter like myself. But <laughs> what, what's your crystal ball telling you? I'll take a punt and say, I think, I think we will have a ref- another referendum in the next five years. Right, but you're not, you're not going to take a punt on the result? No, I'm not. 
too much, too too many hostages to fortune. <laughs> <laughs> all right, thank you all so much, Le- Le- Leslie Riddick, Paul Sweeney, and Libby Brooks. Right, that's enough hypotheticals for one year. Next week, Jessica and I will be joined by our colleagues Peter Walker and John Crace to go back through a troubled but fascinating year for UK politics. And we take a stab at what to expect from 2021. A big thanks to all of our guests this week. The producer is Danielle Stevens. I'm Heather Stewart. Thanks, as always, for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Heute in fünf Jahren, der Zukunftspodcast. In dieser Staffel fragen wir eine neue Auswahl an Experten aus verschiedenen Disziplinen wie Politik, Mode und Sport, wie die Welt in fünf Jahren aussehen wird. Diese Woche werden wir von Ford unterstützt, die selbst einen Blick in die Zukunft gewagt haben, um zu erfahren, wie sich Sport und Motorsport durch Innovationen im Bereich Leistung und Nachhaltigkeit verändern werden. Nämlich im Rahmen ihres eigenen Podcasts Dare to Create. Finde heute in fünf Jahren und Dare to Create von Ford jetzt bei allen Podcast-Playern.